This is Phil M. Jones, author of Exactly How to Sell, the sales guide for non-sales professionals. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover the smartest ideas behind what's actually working in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in. Just connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018 in Cleveland this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is a wonderful event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to be leading the workshop Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an Inbound Marketing Guide to Reaching technical audiences. For details, go to contentmarketingworld.com and for the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code marketingbook and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of his drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details in a few minutes and now on with the show. Today, we welcome Phil M. Jones back to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Exactly How to Sell, the sales guide for non-sales professionals, published by Wiley. Phil M. Jones has made it his life's work to demystify the sales process, reframe what it means to sell, and help his audiences to learn new skills that empower confidence, overcome fears, and instantaneously impact their results. The author of five international best-selling books and the youngest ever winner of the coveted British Excellence in Sales and Marketing Award, Phil works with companies worldwide and has delivered over 2,000 presentations in over 50 countries, training more than 2 million people. And interesting fact, at the age of 14, with nothing more than a bucket and a sponge, he went from single-handedly washing cars at weekends to hiring a number of friends working on his behalf, resulting in him earning more than his teachers by the time he was 15. Phil, congratulations on exactly how to sell, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me back, man. Well, so... Phil, you've, I sense a trend here. Exactly. It seems to be the word that just, uh, you told me about another book you're working on. And, and I said, you know, I bet it's going to be exactly. And sure enough, you've got a great franchise title here. Seems to be, right? So I could even say the word exactly to that statement you just made. Ah, I see what you did there. So, Phil, tell us the story of how this book came to be. 
I guess for me, having been in the sales training space now for over a decade and continually putting together ideas, working with people who find themselves doing all that they possibly can to to stand the other side of sales and be anti-sales in some way and see the stereotype as something they want to run away from. What I've always looked to be able to do is to is to simplify that process and help people who are fearful of selling to sell more effectively and understand that selling isn't a dirty word. So I wanted to produce a, a manuscript, a guidebook that could lead people through sales, help understand it more as a process and put themselves in control of more of their conversations and win more business as a result and maybe move away from some of the jargon that gets thrown around in this space. Yes, and this is an excellent book for marketers because, as you say, it's not necessarily for the salespeople, although I think that there's a lot of salespeople that would benefit tremendously from it. But one of the reasons I love to have authors of sales books on the Marketing Book Podcast is because these days, if marketers are not familiar with the sales process and the objections that are uh, come up during it and how their customers are buying, they're going to become increasingly irrelevant uh, as a marketer. And this is at a time when marketing and sales have to work even more closely together than, than five years ago. But I want to ask you to go into a little bit more detail. You mentioned that uh, when you do seminars, you'll often ask people for adjectives that describe a stereotypical salesperson. And Correct. just just so everyone can understand, and I want everyone to think of like a plaid sports coat, at least in the US, what, what kind of words generally come up when you ask folks, what are some of the stereotypical salesperson descriptions? The words are, are real similar. I get pushy, obnoxious. I get liar. I get deceitful. I get people use the words use car salesperson, double glazing salesperson. And, and every time I get that list of words, I normally ask one further question, which was if those words were used to describe you or somebody saw that image in you when they were looking to be able to transact with you, how would that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And the body language that I get from an audience full of people when I ask that question is, is you can imagine them squirming in their seats thinking like, yuck. And then what I lean in is I, I lean in and ask another question. I ask them the, what adjectives would they use to describe not a stereotypical salesperson, but a professional salesperson by alternative. And I find it remarkably interesting that now the set of words that comes is almost the absolute opposite of what was presented previously. So mm-hmm. I now get honest, good listener, ethical, helpful, polite, friendly, knowledgeable, caring, sharing. And I say to them, if those words were used to be able to describe you, then how would that make you feel? Well, I think they would get very excited. But why do – have people just not had enough interactions with professional salespeople or is it just they just remember the bad experiences more than the professionals that don't seem like they're selling? I, I think what we also have is a glamorization of what selling is. So even when you look at movies like Wolf of Wall Street, which is you know a popular global, uh, global hit, Leonardo DiCaprio starred in it, what's celebrated as sales skills is, is people perhaps doing things where one side of the argument wins and the other side of the argument loses. Mm-hmm. So what happens is, is people don't want to feel like that too much of the time. It's not about manipulation. It's not about putting people into a situation where what you did is you sold ice to Eskimos or sand to those that live in the Sahara. It's more about saying, how do we find ways of helping people in the decision-making process? So I think people's preconception of what a salesperson is wrong. And I'd also go one stage further and say that if anybody ever says the words to you, particular customer, that you're a good salesperson, it's definitely not a compliment. 
right? It means you've been caught trying to sell to somebody. The result that I look for with the audiences that I work with and, and a real goal of, of people reading a book like exactly how to sell isn't to get applause for your sales skills. It's merely to receive the words thank you from your customers more often mm-hmm. and have them choose you as opposed to somebody like you. Mm-hmm. So, Phil, you talk about the two most important questions <laughs> that everyone's selling needs to have answers to. And don't, I don't want to ask you to tell us what they are, but the problem is it's two questions, but getting those two questions is difficult. And it seems like questions that people don't really want to answer. Well, if I explain to you where it came to me as to why those two questions are so important. A question I often ask through the training seminars that I work through uh, is, so, you know, how many of you would like more new customers? And the whole room's putting their hands up. Everybody would like more new customers. I say, like, like, but how many more? And the typical answers I get back is, is like lots or as many as I can get. And most people fail to realize the error in their ways with that level of thinking. Because for many people listening in right now, if I delivered up 7,432 brand new prospects for them tomorrow morning, chances are they wouldn't be able to deliver the service they've built their reputation on up until right now. And the majority of those people will leave disappointed. Mm -hmm. So what we should really have is a greater understanding of what it is that we're looking to be able to do. And I talk a lot towards marketing and sales and how they sit together. And what marketeers do is they do a great job of getting bees around a honeypot. However, they're not in control of what those bees are. Sometimes they attract some of the wrong kind of people. What salespeople can do by alternative is they can choose their customers. The only trouble is that most people fail to execute that right to choose. So the two questions that we talk about at the beginning is very much about putting the professional in this in control of the direction they want to go looking in and to make sure what they're doing is that they're choosing the people they want to work with as opposed to sitting, waiting, wishing, hoping, praying that those customers will in turn find them. Mm Mm-hmm. So what are the two questions? You want to know? Okay. Oh, wait. We'll tell, we we'll tell a listener at the end of the interview. No, I'm just kidding. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Okay, two real simple questions. One is who are the people you're looking to help? And two is what are the problems that you can solve for them? See, too many people think that what they're trying to sell is the thing. What we're really on the hunt for is the missing people. We're looking to find some people that we can add towards our business. And I don't care what they're missing from. They might be missing from your bank balance, missing from your CRM system, miss- missing from your client records, you know, missing from your schedule. I don't know where they're missing. I do know they're missing. So firstly, you have to decide who are the people that you truly help. And when you know who the people are that you're trying to help and the problems that you in turn solve for them, what you then find yourself being able to do is to go on the hunt to find those people. And instead of saying, would you like to buy X, Y, or Z? What we can say is, you know, we understand that you might have A, B, or C type of problem, challenge, issue, or obstacle, and we are well equipped to be able to help people like you solve problems like that. Mm -hmm. The missing person concept was very interesting because it just brings to mind a, a mystery where you're looking for a very specific kind of person, or maybe it's a Sherlock Holmes, and they have a pretty good idea of who they're looking for. And in sales, when you have that same sort of idea of what you're looking for, it seems like things can be sped up for you, and uh, you can cut out a lot of extraneous wasted time in sales and marketing. Yeah, and we live in a world right now where people have access to huge quantities of data, and I've worked in telemarketing organizations where people are like, we've got to get through those calls. It's 120 dials a day. It's, um, or people are, are marketing and they're pushing campaigns out to big lists. 
Yeah, when I drill down to it with the majority of individual sales professionals or individual business owners as to how many more brand new customers would you like, often the answer falls into an extra one or two a week. That's often where it falls, not an extra 10,000. Yeah, what we're doing is applying marketing metrics towards giant numbers when the outcome that we're actually looking for is often a far smaller number. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you explain that when you're looking to communicate with someone for the first time in a sales situation, that you should ask yourself the question, am I looking to fix the problem or help the person? Yep. Explain the difference there. I think more often than not, when we are in conversations, well, well, first, let's back up a second and understand the decision-making process. And we've got to understand that decisions made on emotional logic. And the true answer to that question is both. But emotion always comes first. Something has to feel right before it ever makes sense. Mm -hmm. In almost every sales conversation in a traditional capacity, somebody catches wind of somebody's problem and says, aha, I can fix that. I'm going to use an example of an industry that I do a great deal of work in. I work within the healthcare sector and in particular help people with the transaction of hearing aids. And when I'm having discussions with people about hearing aids, somebody uncovers a hearing loss and then moves to be able to help explain to that person about how these hearing aids are so wonderful and all the fantastic things that they can do to help them fix the problem. Yet we're not looking to be able to fix the problem of hearing loss until we've helped the person in this scenario, accept and understand and find agreement that they too have that same problem and also understand the results that are going to be achieved with that individual should we go on to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So what we're not looking to be able to do is to fix the hearing loss. What we're really looking to be able to do is to increase their level of confidence that they have when they're out and about in conversations with strangers and how they can enjoy things that they used to enjoy that they've stopped going to because they find it difficult to understand in background noise. Mm-hmm. That's what that's helping the person is to say, how do we help you grow your confidence in social scenarios? Not how do we fix your hearing? Right, right, right. Uh, and it seems like so many uh, people want to jump right to the tactics or talk about the product instead of how the product's going to help them. Now, you talk about how if you're looking to create more opportunities in sales and you know open more doors and get more inquiries, then you must be seen as the expert in your field. What are some of the things that salespeople can be doing to help them be seen as the expert in their field? Well, there's a, f a few things that they can be doing. But first of all, let's understand what an expert does. What an expert does is they earn the right to make a recommendation. And that is my dictionary definition of what selling really is, is earning the right to make a recommendation doesn't mean that you're embellishing a product or service with features or benefits hoping that something's going to stick. You earn the right to make a recommendation. The only way you can earn the right to make a recommendation is by asking questions. See, what happens is questions create conversations. Conversations create relationships. Relationships create opportunities, and only those opportunities become sales. So one of the first points that people can have to be seen more like an expert is first to seek to understand before they move towards offering advice. So questions are going to be a key part of that. The other things that often then end to happen is, is the ability to set your stall out, apparently, that you look like you know what you're talking about. And this may well be niching down to show greater understanding of the industry in which you serve. See, it's far easier that if you're, say, a mortgage advisor, that instead of you being a mortgage advisor for everybody, 
that you become a mortgage advisor for self-employed business owners. Mm -hmm. If you become a mortgage advisor for self-employed business owners and you're having a conversation with a self-employed business owner and you say, I'm a mortgage advisor for self-employed business owners, self-employed business owner says, I'm a self-employed business owner. You must be right for me. Whereas if you say that I am a mortgage advisor for everybody, then guess what happens? It becomes a little bit more of an uphill conversation. The why you question is harder to be able to answer. Mm -hmm. But yet people seem to be so afraid to carve out a niche. Right. What do you say to them? Or to to help them see what may seem like a uh, counterintuitive approach. Okay. Now, in one of my most successful businesses, we turned over 240 million pounds in our best year. What I don't tell a lot of people is in our second best year, we turned over 80 million pounds. Fairly big difference between those two numbers. Now, the biggest difference between the second best year and the best year was in the best year, we became an investment property specialist company for dentists. <laughs> and you had been doing the exact same thing in the 80, in the 80, pound, 80 million pounds? Yeah, but we were for everybody. Mm. See, when we became for dentists, what would happen is instead of us going to the investment property expos, looking to be able to win more business, being surrounded by other people that were doing very, very similar to us, we went to the dental exhibitions where we were the only people at the dental exhibition offering an investment property solution. Everybody else was drills and chairs and, and you know, funny braces and wonderful new tools and equipment. And there we are saying, hey, Mr. Dentist Owner. We specialize in working with people like you of being able to reinvest some of the profits that you make from your business. And we were in a marketplace of one. Now, what was interesting was, is that, yes, we were an investment property specialist for dentists three days a week. See, on other days, we were still happy to work with anybody and everybody. Mm -hmm. And guess what would happen is, although we would be a specialist in dentists, people would say, well, I'm not a dentist. We actually um, operate a, um, a manufacturing company. And we'd say, that's great. We'll work with you, too. So it doesn't become truly exclusive. It becomes exclusive in the approach that you have to be able to open up a door. And I always refer to it as like an arrow, right? The thing that creates the success of an arrow performing in a bow and arrow type relationship is the point or the tip of the arrow. The thing that causes all the damage with an arrow is the weight that comes behind it. Now, the majority of people in business have all of the weight but none of the tip, which means that when they go towards a market, then what they do is they hit it blunt and they often bounce off. Mm. Yeah, what if they can do is they can create the tip on this, then guess what happens is you get through doors easier, you get into the heart of the conversation more freely, you get to be seen as the expert with less resistance, which then allows you to bring your weight to the conversation at a later date and then win the transaction. Mm, all the weight, none of the tip. I love that. That's great. And I'm stealing it. <laughs> with full attribution, though, of course. You're very welcome. So you, let's talk about process. It seems like so many sales folks don't understand the, the value of just following a process. And you, you, you talk about how that successful selling starts with and, and understanding that there is a process with a series of steps to, to work through. But explain what you mean when you say that slowing the process down can often result in speeding up the outcome. Well, let, let's jump to a to a scenario that maybe many of the listeners could easier understand. And and the world of dating and relationships, I think, can often be quite easily aligned towards the world of sales. Mm -hmm. And what often happens is is people want to meet on the first date, introduce themselves to the parents on the first date, decide to get married on the first date, and then look to be able to settle down and have children for the rest of ever on the first date. Mm -hmm. Or they look for something inappropriate on the first date. 
that's how many people show up in the world of sales. But what we know that needs to happen to have long-term success is that almost romancing of a customer piece needs to happen with authenticity and truth. We need to work through all of those bases. And, and quite simply, that, that would often mean that firstly, we've got to get that no like trust piece in place. And everybody knows that, but very few people share with you how you can do that. And we share some of the rules of rapport in the book, Exactly How to Sell, as to how people can have more effective conversations to get to that position of trust more easily. Mm-hmm. Then it's about saying, let's create a problem worth fixing. Let's get agreement in the fact that we're on the same page, that we're actually looking to create a genuine opportunity. I often get people ask me the question as to, yeah, but how would you sell this to this person? I said, I've got no idea. Because what I need to do is I need to understand that other person's circumstances and find out if they could truly benefit from what it is that we're looking for. And there's a process of qualification or exploration that needs to happen before we do any recommending. And we need to get to that point. Now, you might be able to get to that point in six seconds. You might need six months or six years to get to that point. But if you know that the first thing you need to do is to build rapport and the second thing that you need to do is to qualify to create a genuine opportunity – What you then know is only once you've created a genuine opportunity, you're going to move to a next step, which would be saying that I need to give the customer enough information to make a decision. Mm -hmm. Related to that, can you explain the the concept of the easy first yes and and how that helps sellers avoid what you're describing of wanting to get married on the first date, or as Gary Vaynerchuk calls it, the 19-year-old dude move? Which, okay. is, which is which is a 19-year-old dude thinking he's going to get some serious action, romantic action on a first date. There you go. There you go. Well, the, the difference here is, is big decisions are hard to make. Let me take it out of context for a second is we've all been in that situation where it's either a business event or a social occasion where we get asked, you know, what do you want to eat on Thursday, the 29th of January, 2020? And you get presented with a menu option. And you think, I got no idea what's the weather going to be like. What did I have for lunch that day? And, and you find yourself looking at this, this option thinking, I cannot make that decision. That's too big a decision for me to be able to make. So you lean on some prior information and you give it your best guess. And then when you get there on the 22nd of January, you think, well, that, what was I thinking? When they serve you up with the meal that you uh, tick the boxes on, it's hard to be able to make some of those big decisions. And I think when people are asking people or inviting people to be able to choose them in the service, this same thing happens. I was working with a training company the other day that has large high-level training contracts into six and seven figures. Now, the trouble is going to be there is if you're presenting that as a proposal to somebody, that looks like a big, big decision. What can become a lot easier is if you develop what I call easy first yes products that is the chance for somebody to get their toe in the water before they go up to their knees, before they go up to their waist, before they go up to their neck in it. So an easy first yes, for example, in a training business might be a one-time workshop, might be a almost try-before-you-buy showcase type event that says, aha, you're speaking to everybody else about $300,000 contracts and you're trying to pick between three service providers, we give you a risk-free $20,000 opportunity to be able to step and try us with less risk in the first instance. Guess what happens if they take the easy first? Yes, you move yourself into a marketplace of one. Mm. I don't know if you've ever played the game of poker, but it's very similar to having somebody pot committed. You know, If they can put some chips in the middle when they're holding their first set of two cards and then they can play it round for the flop to happen in a game of poker, now they've got some chips in the middle. They're more interested in seeing this thing out to the end. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to get somebody to buy a small decision than it is to get them to make a big decision. So we bring that back full circle 
towards the you know the restaurant choice as to what you might want to eat across multiple courses restaurant doesn't do that they sell you a table reservation when you have your table reservation they sit you down and say what would you like for an appetizer or can i grab you a cocktail you make the first decision first you make the second decision second you make the third and fourth decision together then you get invited for a fifth sixth seventh eighth decision but if you had to make all of those decisions in one go chances are you'll probably be still sat inside saying what shall we eat tonight darling mm. Beautifully explained. That's great. That's great. But yet, somehow, everyone forgets about how they buy uh, when it comes to their own selling. And I think there's a mindset shift here as well, which I'd love people to pick up from the reading exactly how to sell, is that our job is not to embellish the product or service. Our job is to assist the other person in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. It's a very different thing. And it means that actually what you then do is that you become responsible for the other person's decision-making process not responsible for the success of the sale. Very important distinction. And, and that's where in this book, as well as in the previous book, exactly what to say, which I really liked, is you said you refer to salespeople as professional mind maker uppers. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. That's the job is, right? I mean, yeah, and that's why it. we're necessary. And this is one thing that frustrates me about the profession as a whole. And, and consumers are anti-salespeople. Yeah, if they didn't meet those of us out there that are, are doing it with ethics and authenticity and trust and, and genuine help in, the mid, in amongst them, almost every decision would never get made because they require that consultation. They want assistance and support. And some things are really hard. Like I'm, I'm trying desperately right now to buy new windows for my home here in New York. And it's one of the most challenging and difficult experiences I've ever had in my life because all everybody wants to talk to me about is price. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make the right decision. But everybody's just saying, well, this is our price for our windows. I'm like, yeah, but what's the difference? <laughs> Like, help me understand, like, this is what I want to do. These are the things that are important. These are the environmental credentials that are important to me. These are the materials that I care about. These are materials, like, nobody's asking me any of that stuff. So I'm sat here looking at pieces of paper that I don't really understand any of the jargon that I'm being presented with. So the only thing I'm left to compare with is the number. And as a result of which, I can't make a decision, and we're probably going to put it off till the spring. We're going to take a break here so I can talk about one of my favorite things, single malt scotch. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2018. I'm going back this September to Cleveland for this awesome conference, and I'm looking forward to meeting more of you just like I did last year. That was so much fun. I'm going to be doing a workshop with my friend and past Marketing Book Podcast guest, Rebecca Geyer, author of Smart Marketing for Engineers, an inbound marketing guide to reaching technical audiences. The workshop is Industrial Manufacturing, Applying Content Marketing Best Practices to the Challenging Audience of Engineers. If you're a manufacturing marketer and are able to attend, I just want to warn you, when this workshop is over, we may end up having to rush you to the emergency room at the Cleveland Clinic because you are going to be at risk of overdosing on so many awesome practical, actionable marketing insights that are going to grow your manufacturing business and boost your career. To get the absolute lowest price when you register, make sure to use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK and they'll knock another $100 off your ticket price. That's right. That's $100 you can then spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. But enough about that. Let's talk about scotch. If that rock-bottom price to attend Content Marketing World isn't enough incentive, here's one more. When you register using promo code MarketingBook, there's also a bottle of scotch in it for me 
from the nice people at Content Marketing World. We're talking win-win here, people. But now let's say you can't attend Content Marketing World and you feel bad about that. Well, you can still send me a bottle of single malt scotch. Seriously. The mailing address is at marketingbookpodcast.com. Do it. But let's say you can attend Content Marketing World and you're thinking, well, Douglas, I like your podcast, but I'm just not yet ready to send you a bottle of scotch. But I would like to show my appreciation for what you're doing here. I've got you covered too. Here's what you do. First, pour yourself a drink. Have two. And then go to iTunes or Apple Podcast, as they call themselves now, and leave a one-sentence review for the Marketing Book Podcast. And then message me on LinkedIn and tell me which one is yours so I can raise a glass and toast your review and your good taste in podcasts. (laughs) And now, back to the show. Phil, I want to jump to one specific thing on page 65 that just warmed the cockles of my heart. And I'm going to read a short excerpt and then ask you to reveal what you're talking about. (laughs) Having delivered and experienced dozens of ideas and campaigns to win the attention of prospects and clients, I've discovered there is one very practical idea that is easy to implement and brings consistent positive results year after year. As the world embraces more digital communication, I foresee it only rising in effectiveness. Understanding that it is the thought that counts, I wanted to find out the one form of communication that would guarantee my message was received, was high impact, and delivered results. Phil M. Jones. What did you find? What are you talking about? <laughs> um, what we're talking about is, is, is a handwritten card. Nothing more complicated than a handwritten card. And, and I know we're talking to a lot of marketeers right now. One of the biggest things that we're concerned about with any marketing piece is open rate. Now, I know that if I deliver a little envelope to somebody in a brightly colored envelope with a handwritten front on it and a, and a physical stamp in the corner of that envelope – there's a good chance that that piece of mail is going to be opened. So my open rate and my attention is already better. The other thing with a card is you can't fill it with junk and information you don't need. A card can say so many little different things, but it has to show that you care and not say that you care. Better still than that, what cards also do is they create a little warm, fuzzy feeling. You've never received a card and thought, like, screw you. Like, you receive a card, and the thing that you end up feeling is, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Better than that, though, is another magic thing is um, if this was a letter, we'd be confused because we don't have a process or a system of what to deal with that letter. It goes in a pile in your desk. It finds itself in a file in your office. It gets covered in another paper. It stops working 30 seconds after you read it. If it was an email, it gets deleted, moved to trash, file 13, any of those kind of things. If it's a card, we know exactly what our process is to do with every card because we've been trained since childhood. So what do you do with a card when you receive a card? You open it up and read it. And then you put it up <laughs> right. like somewhere. Like I'm going to display this thing with pride. Like it's going on my desk. It's going on the mantelpiece. It's like I can't throw this thing away because that's rude. Right. And, you know, I once worked at a, an agency in New York and the head of the agency each year on an employee's anniversary of, of working there would simply write a handwritten note that said, we really appreciate all the hard work you're doing here. And everyone would keep them and they would start putting them up on the wall. They would collect them like uh, racing stripes or something. Right. And there's some magic places you can use a card in the sales process. And why don't I just share one with the listeners right now to help them really see the impact. One of the most vulnerable points in the decision-making process is after you've had your first consultation with the prospect. 
So what's happened here is that you won the appointment, you've been able to go and see them, that you've uncovered the problem, you've created a genuine opportunity, you've presented to them in some way how you can help them, you've shared them the price of what's involved, you've helped deliver all the value, and they are saying something along the lines of, we need a few days to be able to think about it. Mm. They're firmly stuck in the position of maybe. This is a common place that everybody in business experiences at some point in their life. Now, what we now find ourselves in is either in the waiting game or the pushy game, or we have a rescheduled next step. Now, the professional would have a rescheduled next step. Most people will find themselves in either the waiting or the pushy phase purely by accident of being too excited that the meeting went well. What happens if instead that when you leave that meeting, that what you do is you reach to the glove box of your car, you reach to your work bag, you reach to the drawer in your, in your desk when you get back, and you pull a card out and you write a simple card that says something along the lines of, you know, hi, Doug, it was great to meet with you today. I'm really excited about the possibilities of what we can achieve together. Looking forward to speaking to you again next week to find out what you want to do next. Thanks a million, Phil. What if that's all that the card said? And then what I did is I addressed it up in person. I put it into the next mailbox. And the next day or the day after that, that card is guaranteed to be received. What have I done to increase the chances of that, that transaction closing? Well, you stood out like no one else because the handwritten note is so rare. And can that person not get back to me? If they want to avoid you, sure. Yeah, a lot harder though. You see, if what would happen if I didn't have that step put into place, my chance of getting back to them is that I have to appear pushy. Mm-hmm. If what now happens is I send the card with an agreed date for us to be able to have a further conversation and I don't hear back from them that day and then I'm calling them, I'm calling them because they're rude. See what we've done just with the shift of you know, the, the, the mild nuances in the psychology of who owes who. Right, right, right. Well, Phil, you mentioned this idea of stuck in the position of maybe, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. You, you, you write that the, the bigger opportunity for sales success lies with that enormous volume of people who are, in fact, stuck in the position of maybe, or they're looking to decide at another time, or they're just maybe a little too comfortable with the status quo bias. And for me, as a business owner, that is my biggest competition, is people who just don't want to make any kind of change. What's some advice you have for people that are, are dealing with that, which is probably a very large number of people, even if they don't even realize it? It's a huge number. And maybe let's leverage back to the example that I'm on the buyer's end of right now with the, with the windows. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason I'm stuck in maybe is because I don't have enough information to make a decision, and I haven't got somebody helping assist me in the decision-making process. Well, let me ask, why do you want to replace the windows? Well, that would be a great place to start, wouldn't it? <laughs> See, nobody has asked me that question at this moment in time. What they've done is they've measured and given me prices. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Dumb question. No, not. Great question. And, and that would be a great place to be able to start. Because one of the reasons that I would like to be able to change the windows is not only because they're old, it's that because they're energy inefficient and cosmetically they've had a pieces of tape on them over the time. Or here in New York, people seem to think it's okay to put like window-based air conditioning units hanging out the window and fix them to the window with anything that seems viable. So mm -hmm. what we have is the inability to be able to clean those things off or finish them in some way, coupled with the fact they've been in for 20 plus years, coupled with the fact they're inefficient. Mm -hmm. So although there isn't a desperate need to be able to do it today, it is something I want to be able to do. But it also means that if somebody made a compelling reason for me to do it today, me saying yes would be easy and it wouldn't be about the money. 
Mm-hmm. So what I'm looking for is I'm looking for somebody to ask me four, five, six questions to understand what I really need to be able to then say, because of the fact that you said X, Y, and Z, for those reasons, what we recommend is A, B, and C. See, if somebody would simply say to me, because of the fact that you said that you want these to last a long time, that you're not really interested in any ongoing maintenance, but you do want to protect the planet in some way, and you're looking for maximum thermal uh, you know, efficiencies, what we'd recommend you do is go for a fiberglass window. Now, within the fiberglass window, we've got three different glazing options. And because of the fact that you said that you do want to be able to be cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter, you might want to consider going for the top one. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd be thinking, this makes a lot of sense. <laughs> They've guided you. Right. And they listened. So you've got to ask the questions to collect the evidence to be able to make recommendations. And that's how you get people out of maybe. Mm-hmm. Now, you see what often happens is people get presented with choice, but without any of the data points to be able to go and do it. Like if you had to buy a new dishwasher or a new washing machine, like you find yourself just confused by too much. And you really need somebody to be able to help decipher the code of what you're being presented with, help understand and push the limitations that you have, where your non-negotiables are, and help you through that decision. So where maybe paralyzes too many people, if you're prepared to take the responsibility to dive into that conversation, offer some help and support, ask some questions that stop you selling and move you towards being able to recommend, then what happens is, again, you move to a marketplace of one. Mm-hmm. Because what you've done is you've truly helped the other person see that you're the right choice for them. You haven't tried to convince. Yes. Are, are there any words of advice you have for people who are selling where the uh, you with your Windows situation, you know you've got an issue and you want to try and solve your problem. What about in those situations where a prospect is completely unaware that they even have have a problem? Well, that's what we've got to go and uncover, right? And this is, again, down to that qualification stage. I'm going to use the example of my speaking business. It's the easiest one for me to better use without treading on somebody's toes. Now, what we must understand is that the questions are the thing that drive the value in the first instance. Inquiry comes into me about speaking for an event. My first question back in the other direction is, what is it about me that makes you think that I might be the right choice for you in your next event? Zip it. You're going more for the no than you are for the yes. Well, I'm not even going for anything. I'm just fueling the whole thing through curiosity. Mm-hmm. So before I get into embellishing me or what makes me great, let me try and understand whether there is a problem here that I can solve. So they come back and share with me all the things that they do or don't know about me as to what works. I then might ask, well, how many people are in the audience for the event? Well, they say, well, there's 350 people in the audience. And what you're looking for these people to do is to improve the sales. Yeah, absolutely. I want these people to get better results. I say, well, answer me this. On a typical week, how much are they losing in missed sales opportunities? You know, is it $1,000 a week, $10,000 a week, $5,000 a week? What might it be? They say, well, it could be maybe as much as $10,000 a week. I say, how long has this been going on for? Is this a new thing or is this something that's been happening for some time? They say, well, it's as long as I've been here for the last 10 years. So I say, for 10 years, you've had 350 people losing you $10,000 a week. Let's do the math. How much longer are you going to let that run for? And they say, well, that's why we're talking to you. So now do you see even in that conversation there, when I get to the point of me looking to make a recommendation of how I can help them in that event and the sum of money I'm going to ask them to be able to invest in me for them to be able to do so, then I'm representing value because I've created a problem that is bigger than the money that I'm going to ask. If I cannot create a problem that's bigger than the money I'm going to ask, I might well end up saying is I don't think there's a fit. 
It sounds like you might be looking for somebody different. Let me introduce you to someone. And see what it does. It keeps me in control of the conversation. And I think this is the beautiful thing that when you master this art, it's not about did I win or did I lose? It's am I right or am I not right for this given opportunity? And then you win the ones you're right for, and then you move on or pass on on the ones that you're not. You don't have this confidence of conversion rates affecting your your mindset every single day because you win the ones you were supposed to win. Yeah, and not every prospect is a, a good prospect for you. I want like really kind of get beaten up sometimes about you know the people that say I lost that sale. Now, one thing that I know that happens an awful lot is you know people walk into a retail store, whether it's a you know a, say a car dealership. And they're looking around and they see a car that they quite like and they're having a chat with the salesperson about it. And they finish that conversation with words like, you know, can I have a brochure? Now, a uneducated salesperson in that scenario may well then walk into the sales manager, scratch it up as a prospect, put it into their pipeline, add it to Salesforce, you know, add it towards their prospect list. There's a good possibility, though, that that individual was just passing time, currently is within lease of their existing car that they pay $199 a month for, and they're in lease for another 28 months, and they don't have the funds to be able to buy the Mercedes SL that they were looking at because they were killing the time in an hour between meetings. So how good a salesperson do you need to be to sell something to somebody that they don't have the means to be able to buy? Right. Right? There is no transaction to be won there. And what I'm trying to help people to understand is let's find a problem worth fixing with people who have the means to be able to move forward with it. And guess what now happens is selling is a joy. There's another mindset shift here that many people could really benefit from. And it's where is the finish line? Too many people think in selling that the finish line is the day that you close the sale. You know, they ring the bell, they whoop and holler the day they get the check, send the invoice, get paid and swipe the credit card, whatever it might be. They whoop and holler at that point. Yeah, that's not really the finish line. The finish line should be the day that the client gets the thing that you talked about in the qualification stage before they decided to buy from you. So take the hearing aid scenario that I spoke about earlier on. It's not the day they buy the hearing aid you should be celebrating. It's the day they tell you they're back out in social scenarios, enjoying time with their friends and loved ones. That's what you're selling towards is that moment. Let's give a real simple example. If you were selling wedding dresses, when's the most important day? Probably the wedding day. Right? It's the only day that really truly matters in amongst everything else. Everything else is nice to have, but if it fails to perform on that day, it doesn't matter what they paid, when they paid, how they paid, or how successful the transaction was. You failed if that product didn't perform on that day and they weren't happy with their investment on that day. What happens when you shift your finish line this way around even with your mindset, the monetary part of it, the transactional part of it becomes a step on the journey. It doesn't become the finish line. Yes. And, you know, there was another book on the show a while back by someone I'm, you have probably run into on the speaking circuit, uh, Joey Coleman. Joey's a great guy. Yeah, I love his work. And he wrote Never Lose a Customer Again. And he talks about these eight stages that a customer goes through. And many, many companies never get through all eight. But one of the later ones was sort of like your wedding day analogy. In other words, don't focus on when you sell it. Focus on when that customer achieved their goal that your product or service was related to. And he talks about the power, how powerful that is. So in the wedding dress analogy, even if the wedding dress salesperson were to send a, a handwritten card right after the wedding and say, hey, we hope everything went really well and you know something like that, it would be a big differentiator and 
probably a, a source of, of many referrals. I certainly wouldn't do any harm, right? No, no, not at all. So, Phil, one last thing I want to ask you about the book, and it's sort of a nod back to your excellent book, Exactly What to Say. The late American comedian George Carlin had a comedy bit once about the seven words you can't use on TV. <laughs> and I don't want you to say those words, although you may. But uh, in your book, uh, in this book, Exactly How to Sell, you mentioned seven words that can be discussed on TV and have an enormous impact on any kind of sale. And I was wondering if you could, could share a few of those. Yeah. Um, we, it's really kind of a version of don't say that, say this instead. <laughs> right, right. And one of those words is the word if. So the word if creates a condition in somebody's mind. So if I'm to say to you right now, Doug, look, if you're not careful, then that cup of coffee that you have on your desk right now is going to spill all over your laptop. Then you have a little conscious decision to make in your mind is, are you careful or not? Mm -hmm. So you go in your thought process to am I or am I not careful? It's a 50-50 conditional decision. If I swap the word if to the word when, what I do is I create a vivid image in your mind. If I was to say to you, look, when you turn around next, you're going to knock that cup over. It's going to spill all over your laptop. You cannot help but see a stain on your laptop. If you've seen a stain on your laptop, me offering some form of preventative measure towards that becomes a far easier recommendation given you've seen the thing that I want you to be able to get away from or towards. Mm -hmm. So the if-when switch is a, is a good one. Another one which I think is perhaps even more powerful, particularly here in the US, is one of the worst words that people use. And it's a four-letter C word, and it's not the one that some people might be thinking of. It's the word cost. Yes. See, the word cost quite literally relates towards something that is painful. If you understand the definition of what a cost is, it hurt me. It cost me. Those are interchangeable words. So chances are, if you're asking somebody to be able to buy something from you, you're not looking for it to be able to hurt them. You're looking for it to be able to give something back in return. Now, if something gives returns, it isn't a cost. If you put money into something and it gives something back, that thing is called an investment. So what I would ask people to do is to invest in your service or invest in your products, not the cost of your service or the cost of your products. Investments are happy. Decisions, you feel proud of your investments, costs are bad news. And the very label that you apply to the thing that you're asking somebody for parting with money for, well, it affects everything. So there's two. Let's do one more real quick. Is, um, is the word problem. I mean, mm. why don't we sit down for a second, Doug, and talk about your problems? <laughs> okay. Do you have some time? Right. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. The minute you label something a problem, you're going to get either this spilling of the beans in one direction or you're going to get defense. Right, like there's something I've done wrong. Yeah, you know, even if I was to say to you, the problem I see in that is, can't help but be defensive towards that. See, we own our problems and our problems are something that nothing else can help us with. We've attached them towards the other person. The minute you swap the word problem for the word challenge, now all of a sudden, instead of this being head to head, you can physically see this as being hypothetically side by side. This is something we can overcome together. Yeah, it brings to mind uh, a Sherpa helping me climb a mountain. Yeah, so the problem I see with your existing supplier is, eh? I picked him. Don't tell me about my problems. The challenge I see with you continuing to work with your existing supplier is, mm -hmm. see how it just changes things? Yeah, you, you walk from one side of the table to the other. You're sitting next to them now. Yeah, and this comes back around to much of the work in exactly what to say as well, that the worst time to think about the thing you're going to say is in the moment that you're saying it, and the fact that often the difference between you and somebody like you is knowing the right thing to say at the right time. And I encourage many, many salespeople, not necessarily 
to work on the creation of scripts, but to work on the creation of their scripts for having their version of the right words to be able to say at the same at the right time and for them to know their words, to know their lines by learning them inside out and becoming professional in the language choices they make when face to face with a customer. Particularly when they may not have a fully formed idea of how to respond, but if they can start with the words that were in, in this book as well as exactly what to say, it's like a, a Jeb Blunt, another sales book author, he, he describes it as a ledge where, right. where you've, you've got something to go to until you can figure out how best to proceed, and it makes all the difference. And it's punctuation. Now, verbal conversations can be punctuated, and what it allows you to do is to still control, grab a window, take a breath, put a comma in place. Yeah. So, Phil, if readers took only one thing away from this book, what would you hope it would be? I can do it. I think I can do this. I think I can invite and ask people to be able to buy for me my product, my service. I think I'm worth it, and I think I can confidently and comfortably go ask people for money, control the process, and bring them through to a point of decision. Well said, and it brings us back to what you talked about at the beginning when you describe a professional, have people describe a professional salesperson, and they can almost see themselves doing that, and I would think at the seminars they get excited. Yeah, that's the outcome that I look for in every given event, is people coming away, and, and I see it. It's such a joy sometimes where you see people in an audience with their arms folded think, here we go again, that then 30 minutes in, they've got a page full of notes, and at lunchtime, they're thinking this has been worth it already, and at the end of the day... They leave going, I can do it. Yeah. And I hope the book is a, is a version of allowing people to be able to do that. What I would say about the book is, it, is it, it's worthy of being a workbook. It's the kind of thing that you can pick up and go chapter by chapter. It's the kind of thing you can open any page and look at it for ideas and inspirations. But there's a good chance you might want a notepad to accompany it. That as you spawn some idea in your own mind about something you want to do differently, that you note it, you go take action, put it into practice and see how it differs for you. You know, it's as if you work for the CIA or, or MI5, because as I read through this, there were things like I thought, oh, this would be a great question to ask, and I would make a note or a star or something. But I was making specific notes about our business, <laughs> things we didn't cover in this interview, but I was like, oh, we need to add this to such and such. So, dang, it, that tingling means it's working, I guess. So. <laughs> so, Phil, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to? And don't forget to mention the one you're working on. Well, I'm bound to mention the one that I'm working on. And, and this word exactly means a lot in my world. And, and we have a third book in the series, which is exactly where to start, which is a book for entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs who want to turn their big idea into reality. And it's a precise walkthrough that is like a no holding back, no bars, uh, unturned step to, to be able to get you in the game, not on the podium, but in the game. So I'm excited about seeing how people respond to that book. Um, what else have I I've been reading recently? I mean, Joey Coleman's book that you mentioned, I thought was fabulous. I, I loved reading that, and that's been one that I've come away from recently. And then two others that I can't stop recommending is uh, one is Mark Bowden's book, Truth and Lies. Um, so Mark Bowden and Tracy Thomas are, are some body language experts, happen to be friends of mine. And I, I read their new book recently and was was blown away with some of the overlap into my work and and just the depth of wisdom that they shared on, on what people's body language is saying about them. Um, and then one I can't stop recommending, and I think marketeers and sales professionals should read it, but they would never expect to. It's a book by a friend of mine called Michael Bungaistania, and it's a book called The Coaching Habit. 
And it's a questions book that can have you more effective as a coach, but those same questions could make you more effective as a leader. The same questions could make you more effective in the in the consultative sales process. So I've been having fun recommending that one and rereading it myself too. Oh, good. Well, we'll make sure to include links to those at your episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. So Phil, how best can listeners learn more about you and this new book? Sure. I mean, book is on Amazon and all the other normal places you'd expect to find it. But if you want to tune in and and understand more about me and my work, stop by philmjones.com. And from there, you can dig into some video content, learn more about my background and what we have going on in terms of services. But more importantly, there's a window there for you to be able to then pull out to any of the social networks, plug in and join the conversation with me using your preferred method. Yes. And on Twitter, Bill is at philmjonesuk. And uh, so if you're on Twitter, make sure to tweet at him. Thank him for being a guest again on the Marketing Book Podcast. On Twitter, I'm Marketing Book, if you want to add me to the conversation. And Phil, I'm also going to include a link to your LinkedIn profile. And Perfect. for the listener, if you're listening on a smartphone and you've subscribed to this show on your podcast player of choice, which makes it a whole lot easier for you, and I'm referring to uh, podcast players like Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Google Play Music, all these links can be found by going to this episode on your podcast player and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is Exactly How to Sell, The Sales Guide for Non-Sales Professionals. The author is Phil M. Jones. Phil, thank you very much for coming back to the Marketing Book Podcast. A joy to be here, Doug. Keep up the good work. And that closes the book on episode 185 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, Content Marketing World 2018. To support the Marketing Book Podcast, get details, register, and get the absolute lowest price on attending, go to contentmarketingworld.com and use the promo code MARKETINGBOOK. There's also a link to Content Marketing World at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Alan Dibb to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The One-Page Marketing Plan. Get new customers, make more money, and stand out from the crowd. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.